Now, if you've ever found yourself repeating the same thing over and over for 75 years, you might be Smokey Bear. Only you can prevent wildfires. That's why I'm filling in for Smokey to switch things up, because there's a lot more to say. And I should know because my grandfather was a firefighter. And one of the things he taught me is that the people that love the outdoors the most are often the ones accidentally starting wildfires. Which means always BYOB. <laughs> no, bring your own bucket to the campfire. And be extra careful with things like burning yard trimmings. Don't just walk away or chances are you might be starting a wildfire. So for the love of the outdoors, go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. This is Scott Richmond and Arnie Sherman. You're listening to What Do You Know on News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. Good morning, Arnie Sherman. This morning we are joined by author, novelist, journalist, Gary Lipman. Back after this. We are back with our guest, author, theater director, man of many talents, Gary Journalist, Lipman. attorney. Attorney. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you work yeah. with the Innocence Project. Are you still working with them, or you work with them? I stopped. I stopped to write full time to focus on the journalism and the fiction writing, and now right. stage direction. Where I should clarify, Zoom direction, because I'm directing a play over Zoom. But I was with the Innocence Project as an attorney for many years, working pro bono mainly with them. And the Innocence Project, which is based in New York, though there are branches everywhere around the country. We would use DNA evidence to get people out of jail when they were innocent, when the DNA evidence and other factors showed that these people were actually innocent. And there's lots of people that, that uh, fell under that category, right? Oh, yeah. They're either typically they're either in prison but innocent because of prosecutorial misconduct, where there's just bad apple prosecutors who want to find uh, uh, the killer or the rapist in a big case and they think this guy they focused on is guilty and so they just put all their weight into having that guy nailed and convicted and keeping him in. That's So the prosecutorial con misconduct is one reason why innocent people go to jail. And the other reason is, of course, what human nature, with human nature, we're all too prey to, which is just mistakes. You know, people yeah. get lost, caught, you know, fall between the cracks. I've noticed that a lot of our clients were either extremely boisterous, extroverted types who would sadly talk themselves into trouble mm -hmm. or try too hard to talk their way out of trouble and make the trouble worse, or they were very passive, innocent, soft-spoken types who really couldn't stick up for themselves enough and who mm -hmm. kind of broke down. So in both cases, it's a tragedy when there would be innocent people in prison. But fortunately, we live in an age where DNA really is like a magic tool to exonerate people. Mm -hmm. And it has exonerated hundreds and hundreds of people nationwide since the 90s when DNA became a factor. Um, 
What's sad are what are sad are the cases uh, where we really would go over the case at the Innocence Project and believe the person was innocent or seemed to be innocent, but there was no DNA angle or not enough of an evidentiary angle that could get them out. Of course, so, that's heartbreaking because, you know, you, you, at that point, there's nothing that could be done short of the real killer being found found guilty or coming forward, and you can't count on that. So those are really tragic cases. So during that time you were working there, were you still – were you writing um, not fiction at that point? I began – I was always a fiction writer since grade school. As soon as I learned how to read, I was – I was really into writing and I think, you know, this is a kind of mundane statement, but I had a really tumultuous childhood. I was, uh, uh, my parents divorced and very, uh, hot with great hostility when I was an only child and young, I was three. And so they went to war with each other. So I was kind of caught in the crossfire. And as a result, I began writing and making up stories as an escape, I think, Mm. It's what drew me to stories and movies and music. Um, I wasn't that into sports, but I was really into the arts of all kinds. Gary, where did you grow up? Suburban New Jersey, oh. West Orange. Yeah. West Orange, okay. Yeah, and uh, near Newark. And I was scarred as a child when I was <laughs> watching the gong show. Do you guys remember the gong show? Oh, yeah. So I watched the gong show one night when I was about 10 years old. And I was very aware of the fact that West Orange, where I grew up, was a suburb of Newark. And Newark had its problems with riots, but I felt like that was sort of, you know, my home base. And I was scarred by Chuck Barris, the host of the gong show. Remember he used to go, yeah, let's clap his hands. Yeah. yeah. And he had those those crazy suits with not ascots, but like big bow ties. Yeah, yeah, he was, yeah. And that short haircut, he had that little short Yeah, he had kind of curly hair, and one day he insulted someone. Now, picture me. I'm from, you know, near Newark, and they're in Hollywood, the gong show, and I'm watching TV, and he insults someone by saying to them, hey, man, I like you, but then again, I like Newark. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was a great insult, but at the time when I heard that, I felt like he had – reached out from the TV and smacked me in the face, right? Dissing my nearest big city in New Jersey to me. I felt kind of offended by that. Right. And I'll tell you guys, decades later, I met Chuck Barris. Really? He had published a book, which George Clooney made into a movie called uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Dangerous Mind. Mind. Yeah, that was an interesting movie. And It is an interesting movie. I recommend it. And the book is crazy because he – writes about his work as a gong show host and a TV producer. But and then he, he said he was a spy. He claims he was a CIA assassin when he wasn't working on the gong show. Yeah. Which is a brilliant way to sell books, right? Nobody right, could yeah. do that. Anyway, I met him. I met him doing a book signing in San Francisco, and he signed my book, and I said, you know, I love the gong show, and I remember you insulted someone by saying, hey, man, I like you, but then again, I like and as I said, Newark, he said, Newark, like he remembered the diss, right? Yeah. And, and I said, I laughed and he laughed. And then I said, was that an old like vaudeville joke or something? And he got offended <laughs> with me. He looked really pissed. He went, what do you mean vaudeville? No, that was me. That was original, man. What do you think? I steal jokes? 
Sorry. <laughs> anyway, that's the Gonsville Boys in New Jersey. Gary, you grew so you grew up writing, though. You grew up kind of your imagination oh, went took you very far. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I ultimately uh, published a novel came out last year called "Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon Tate." Right. And I mention that now because the germ of that book, the kind of seed for that book, was planted right around the time I, when I was in New Jersey, age ten, watching TV watching the gong show. I happened to watch an old movie, which um, uh, was um, a Dean Martin spy movie from the late 60s called uh-huh. um, uh, The Wrecking Crew. And there was a beautiful actress in the movie. And when I began watching her, I fell in love. I was just a kid, just entering puberty but I fell in love with this actress on the, on the TV screen. And uh, when this, and I didn't recognize her. It wasn't Raquel Welch or, or Angie Dickinson or anyone like that. Right. The end of the, the end of the movie, when the credits rolled and I watched to see what the actress's name was, my new love, I saw her name was Sharon Tate, which gave me a chill. Actually, it horrified me as a kid watching that and reading that because as a as a kid at that age, I nevertheless knew who Charles Manson was. I'd sure. looked at the book Helter Skelter in my local bookstore, and I knew she was a murder victim. So uh, when I saw that, I was so horrified. And many years later, thinking about things to write about, fiction, you know, stories to make up, I hearkened back to that and remembered that memory. And like a lot of fiction writers do, I said to myself, what if... What if the Nazis won World War II? What if the pandemic coronavirus never happened in 2020? And another what if that I came up with back then was what if I never got over that first moment of seeing Sharon Tate on my TV right. and love with her and became obsessed with her and couldn't get her out of my mind and built my whole life around her as like this crazy fanboy. The next thing I thought was, what would happen to this guy? What would the story be? And then I immediately thought, wouldn't it be crazy if this guy who's obsessed with Sharon Tate falls in love with a woman who he finds out is obsessed with Charles Manson? That's a bad match. (laughs) And that's kind of the, the engine that drives my book, this crazy affair, which plays out the whole Manson, Sharon Tate, terrible story uh in modern times what do you think liberates your you to think in those terms because the what if game is always great right to be able to play out scenarios i think that you know if you're drawn to stories as i always have been whether you love the stories or you love to write stories make up stories Um, you often will do that. When my son, I've never really told anybody this, but when my son, who's now 22, was a little kid, and I'd read him stories, often over the phone. Right. um, He would would change them. I would be telling him the story of Sinbad, and, you know, how Sinbad got the princess away from the bad guy. And he would say, no, no, no. The bad guy got away with the princess, and Sinbad had to keep chasing them. 
And I thought that was really cool that my son wasn't willing to just hear the story, that he became active and began co-creating the story with me, you know? And I think certain people who love stories either receive them and enjoy them the way we do watching a TV show. Sure. And other people, you know, think, what if? What if it wasn't like that? What if that episode of The Sopranos ended differently, you know? What right. if, uh, you know, and speaking of The Sopranos, it had that great ending, I thought it was great, which was so indeterminate, just went, the screen went black, right? Right. And we're all left forevermore to speculate what happened next. What, 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 right. There's a whole, there's a, a community on social media that is convinced he's dead and right. he was killed by the guy in the members only jacket. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a plausible, that's a plausible, um, uh, explanation. There's also, sure. you know, I think David Chase, the the creator of The Sopranos, could argue it went to black because it was just another moment. You know, it didn't matter where it ended. Uh, one person I know who's actually close to The Sopranos production told me they speculated that Tony, at that moment it went to black, had another panic attack. Like he began the show having panic attacks. You know, right. So it's 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 interesting because. The idea of making up a story based on your imagination and the what if, what right. if parent, right, right. If, I think, as I said, said before, it's quite liberating, but also it, it becomes a lot more interactive with the reader. So oh, yeah. they don't, right? They don't know the story, your story. Right. You're, they have to read your book. They have to keep going with it. Right. Yeah, I, I've been fascinated by that, and you know it's a bit of literary theory here. There's a novel that it's meant a lot to me in my life and it's very not well known, but I recommend it highly to all your listeners, a novel called stone junction by a writer named Jim Dodge. It's a really magnificent, funny, wise, uh, brisk and playful novel. The introduction to the novel was written by the great writer, Thomas Pinchon. Mm -hmm. who I admire a lot. And uh, I had the good fortune to exchange a few emails with the author of this book, Stone Junction. I wrote him a fan letter. A friend of mine knew him. And uh, he wrote me back. And I told him how much his book meant to me. And he wrote me something very beautiful in return. He wrote, he, he has always believed that a novel or any work of art is incomplete until it's read, say, a novel is incomplete until it's read and appreciated by a reader. That the reader doesn't just enjoy it, but in a way he completes that circuit, right? That the novel sitting on the bookshelf or in the imagination or the computer or the author, it's not complete yet. It's only complete once it's read by someone and they get it and take it in and kind of, kind of finish it in their minds mm. by, you know, it's like, uh, a circuit completed or a message sent message received. And I thought that was beautiful. So he really, he wrote very poetically in that email to me about that. Yeah. It's a combination of fact, fiction and fantasy, you know, all sort of melded together. How long from the time it first was a kernel of an idea in your mind till you actually finished the, the novel? Excellent question. Because I have a very unconventional answer. Unlike a lot of writers, I first, as I was telling the story before, saw Sharon Tate on TV, 
had a crush on her. Then I let it go. I moved on. I grew up. I got more into Raquel Welch and uh, Angie Dickinson and Pam Greer. I'm sure these names are known to you guys. Yeah. And uh, beautiful actresses, talented actresses I had a crush on as a kid. Um, and I ended up, uh, you know, not really thinking much about Sharon Tate, but I heard that she was murdered on my birthday. Wow. When I was a young man and I thought, okay, that's weird. And I remembered seeing her on TV when I was a kid and I read Helter Skelter, the book about the Manson killings, but I was in a bar in the early nineties in New York and there was a beautiful female bartender, long blonde hair. And, uh, I thought, why does she look familiar? And then it hit me. She looks exactly or pretty close to Sharon Tate. I, I thought for a moment, I should I'll tell her, you know, flirt with her. Hey, you look like she... Then I thought, no, 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 you don't want to flirt with someone telling them they look like a murder victim, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. I, didn't say, I didn't say that to her, and I didn't get to flirt with her, really. She wasn't especially digging me. So I finished my drink. I was alone that night, I remember, and I walked home and got thinking... Back to that moment when I saw Sharon Tate on my TV as a little kid, and I thought it was that night that I thought, what if a guy had become obsessed with Sharon Tate from watching her on TV and then goes on to build his whole life around her and then ultimately meets uh, someone who's equally obsessed but with Charles Manson. So I had the story then in the early 90s. I began writing it, but then put it away, wasn't happy with it, Ten years later, thought about it, went back, gave it another pass, worked on it, put it away. And then finally, about five years ago, I gave it to my wife to read. And she said, you know, this is really good, you know, finish it. Mm. So I finished it. She helped me, you know, gave me her feedback. I couldn't have done it without her. And uh, so the book is dedicated to her in part. And, and her, uh, name is, her name is Vera? Vera Sombote. She's Hungarian. We met, of all places, not in Hungary, not in New York, not in Newark, but at Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> that says a lot. <laughs> that's, that's a whole other story. Let me just ask you quickly. Yeah. I'm sure you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What did you think of Margot Robbie's take on Sharon Tate? I thought she was great. You know, I recognize that she she's gorgeous in her own right. I, I've seen other actresses like Hilary Duff maybe look a bit more like Sharon Tate. And I wish that Margot Robbie had more screen time in Tarantino's movie. Yeah. But I really captured the sweetness and the goodness that Sharon Tate herself as a person, by all accounts, had. In the, you mentioned, Scott, that my book has a lot of fact in it, my novel. And a big part of my novel is devoted to uncovering her life and her nature and her personhood because I wanted to have her represented in the book. My protagonist, after all, is Gaga in love with her. Uh, and so he's writing a book about her. And I have excerpts from that book, which is just very straight reportage of her life. Mm. So if you read my novel, you know, you not only get his crazy story, but you get a lot about her life from childhood up to her terrible death. So, do, so that, um, that, that, I was going to say, sorry to interrupt, but that begs the question, you must have done a ton of research on her. I did. I did. Yeah, I did. I did a lot of research. And I, um, in the course of doing that research, came to really admire her and like her as a person. Um, 
I really found that she she was, you know, by all accounts, a very decent, kind-hearted person, which just makes her her tragic death all the more tragic. That you know, she was a wonderful, wonderful person. I did that research, and I have some guesses. You know, of course, we're talking about what if again. But I really strongly believe that she found her metier with that movie I saw as a kid, which was called The Wrecking Crew. Which oh, that was with Dean Martin. Dean Martin, exactly. Not a great movie, fun no. movie. But she's terrific in it in a light comedic role. She's very, you know, playful, and, and she plays like a klutz. Well, and I'm fact, a klutz. Well, in fact, as you know, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, they show a clip from that movie – with um, Margot Robbie, you know, reenacting the role that Sharon Tate did in the original movie. It's a beautiful scene in that movie, which I thought was flawed, by the way. I'm a big Tarantino fan. I was disappointed with the film in parts, but I still thought it was well. I've seen it twice and well worth seeing, but uh, not enough Margot Robbie and Sharon Tate for my personal bias. But that one scene... I'm not ruining the story for any listeners who haven't seen it, where she goes to see herself on screen in the movie. Yes. It's beautifully done, and it's it's great, and it really it's does it in a way, because it showed her innocence and her excitement about where she was in her life at that particular time. She was very much, at the time of her death, an up-and-coming starlet. Yeah, People were knocked out by her beauty and had no doubt that she was beautiful enough to go on and be great. There were people who questioned her acting uh, in serious roles. I think that she would have absolutely found a place in our cinema as mm. a as a light comedian in the Julia Roberts or Meg Ryan or Sandra Bullock vein, you know, America's sweetheart. I think she, in the, as a 60s became the 70s, I think she would have had a great career if she chose to have one. There sure. was some speculation she you would have wanted to. She, she was, was only about 26. She was 20 young. Let's, yeah, do, a quick, let's do a quick ID, Arnie. A quick ID. Our guest is Gary Lippman, the author of Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon Tate. That's what we're talking about right now. You've attracted the attention with this book of a lot of um, other well-known writers, Michael Imperioli, who's a great writer in his own right, as well as an actor, and Larry Ratzo Sloman, who I'm a huge fan of, um, for all the obvious reasons. Of course, yeah. So back to the book, do we know if anyone else, has Roman Polanski seen this book? I'm not sure, although, and I, I kind of take off from this, I actually myself, uh, spent a lot of time in Paris. I have an adult son, as I mentioned, who grew up there right. in Paris, France. So I spent a lot of time, you know, my, my work at the Innocence Project that I was talking about earlier became part-time, and I would go to Paris as much as I could to see my son growing up. And while in Paris, at dinner one night with a, a friend, a man walked by my table at this restaurant and he happened. He was looking at me, and I looked up, and it was Polanski. But uh, he just walked by. More interesting was about four or five years later, I did something I rarely do. I did what Sharon Tate in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood does, and I went to a movie matinee. I almost never see movies in the afternoon in a movie theater. 
But I did this one day in Paris, this one rainy day alone. It was a movie with George Clooney called uh, Michael Clayton. Right. When the film ended and the lights came up in the house, I realized there were just a few other people near me. And I noticed the guy a few seats away from me sitting with an elderly woman was Roman Polanski. (laughs) That's that's very I started writing my book about Sharon Tate, but I chose not to mention that to him. <laughs> you, in, in, the, in gathering the research, did you end up going to the Coyote Grill, the last place she ate the night before she died? You know, it's so funny you mentioned that. That is a place I had been going. I've lived in L.A. from time to time in my life, and I used to go to the Coyote before I even knew that was where she'd eaten her last meal. And yeah. as of the last time I was in L.A., I did a book reading at the great bookstore, Book Soup, there. Yeah. Um, I went, I ate there with a friend for lunch one day. It's a classic. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have ever been there. I've it's been not- there. I've been there several times, yeah. Yeah. Gary, what's it, what's it, their blue, blue corn tamales are terrific. <laughs> what's yeah. it like to, to promote a book and release a book during the pandemic? Because... Well, I was I was fortunate in that I the book actually came out late late last year, so right. I did I did my book readings and and um, going around and having the big first push with the book pre pandemic a few okay. months. Um, but uh, now you know so much of it is just social media. I have a wonderful social media guy I've hired to help promote it, um, and. Uh, and he's taken up a lot of slack because I'm sort of terrible with social media and, you know, not good at getting stuff out there. And I've been great, grateful enough, uh, very grateful and fortunate enough to have him. I learned about him from Laura Albert, who you mentioned blurred my book. That her, that's the real name of the author who wrote the J.T. Leroy books, mm-hmm. which are, you know, <laughs> that was an incredible literary scandal. That has spawned two, three or four movies now. Yes. Narrative movie with Laura Dern and uh, Kristen Stewart. Laura Dern plays Laura Albert, who was J.T. Leroy. Incredible scandal and, uh, and entertaining and, and fabulous book that she wrote. So I urge all listeners to check out J.T. Leroy and the whole saga around her novel that came what out. Is, her book. Let me, let me what ask you a story. Yeah. You've, prior to this book, you've you've um, had a writing career in which you focused on a lot of other interviewing other writers, uh, musicians, um, um, movie directors, uh, and people in the you know broad entertainment field. Do you have a favorite interview that you've done? Ah, uh, you know, I've, I've been because I do freelance writing. I often am the person to make the pitch to the editor for whatever magazine or website it is. And I usually pitch people who I know or who I want to get to know. Um, and so uh, many of them I've written about. Scott, you mentioned Larry Ratso Sloman. I've interviewed him, and that came about because we were friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've interviewed a lot of friends, um, so I wouldn't dare – alienate anybody by picking a favorite. <laughs> okay, well, let me, let me give you a, a permutation of that. You've written about some people that have passed away, like Lemmy uh, Kilmister. 
and and you know, the time you spent with them of those people. Got it. Who is your favorite one? <laughs> Good one, Matt. I like that. Yeah. Can't speak ill. Can't speak ill or too well of the dead, right? Right. Exactly. Um, of people who died. Um, well, I'll give you a segue. I just wrote a piece. My most recently published piece was about someone who I'm sure Scott knew as well. Right. And probably Arnie, if you didn't know him, you know of him. Right. The truly great Hal Wilner, music mm-hmm. producer extraordinaire, concert producer, but who was an artist in his own right and extraordinary. I think we're going to, we, I, I want to talk about Hal, but, um, I will say that another piece I wrote about, uh, I wrote about someone who's not with us anymore after he died, someone who I knew a bit and who I know Scott knew, knew as well, far better probably than I did, was Lou Reed. Right. I was super fond of Lou. I only knew him in the last three or four years of his life, but uh, I'm very friendly with Lori, his, his widow, and knew Lori as well. But the piece I wrote about Lou really came from the heart because um, – uh, Lou, Lou was just, I was such a fan of Lou's for decades before meeting him. And I thought Lou was such a sensitive and fascinating person. So writing about Lou after he died, um, was, a was, was something. I think you captured that in the, in the piece you wrote. Was for, was it for Vice, Gary? It was for Vice, yeah. You really captured that. And I think a lot of folks kind of, kind of touch on that a bit, but you, that's where you went. And I think it's consistent with what you did with Hal, which is you kind of presented Hal as an artist, not as a producer, because it's very easy to put him in that one box. But he really was an artist. For for the listeners who don't know, Hal Wilner died of COVID in uh, in his at sixty age sixty four, I believe he was in April of this year. He was one of the first New York COVID victims, and. he, he was the center of an amazing community of artists and artistically minded people. He worked as the music supervisor for 40 years at Saturday Night Live. And he was also a producer of what he called concept records, where he would take Disney movie music and then have Iggy Pop sing, you know, a Disney song and then have Michael Stipe paired with uh, the replacements on that record, you know, crazy combinations of artists doing unusual material in these concept albums that even when I was in college, long before I met Hal, I was a huge fan of and following and buying them whenever they came out. And he would also produce concerts, which were like his crazy records come to life where he would pick uh, the Marquis de Sade, and have, you know, um, Marianne Faithful read from the Marquis de Sade with jazz backing, you know, crazy jazz or avant-garde musical backing. And Hal just was, he was truly a visionary. And he was at it for decades, making amazing art and amazing friends. He was beloved in the music industry. You know, his new record, which I write, I focus on, is a concept or tribute. He didn't like the word tribute, but, you know, uh, for clarity's sake, we'll say it's a tribute to the group T-Rex, Mark Bolin and T-Rex. And um, on this record, he's got, you know, typical Hal. He's got U2, who were good friends of his, 
doing the song Bang a Gong, which oh, was wow. T-Rex's biggest hit. But Hal Wilner, being Hal Wilner, he got Elton John to play piano with mm-hmm. T-Rex. And he got the great New Orleans jazz and R&B horn man, Trombone Shorty, wow. playing, you know, horns with Elton John and U2. And he's just got these amazing combos. They're incredible tracks where the one I'm listening to now a lot is Emily Haynes, who's an amazing singer from the band Metric, right. does a T-Rex song that's fairly obscure called Ballrooms of Mars. And she does this beautiful sort of, there's an avant-garde kind of floaty background. And then the band kicks in with kind of a light funk beat and she's singing. But then in the middle of it, an orchestra comes in doing the, I think it's Holtz's orchestral piece, Mars, Bringer of War, right? <laughs> and suddenly you're, you're torn out of this song, but it's crazy having this orchestra build to a crescendo, and then it goes back into this light, funky kind of moment, and the singer's back with the song. And that was classic Hal. When he played that for me in his studio, I was breathless. He was not only, you know, an encyclopedia of music, cool music from jazz to old-time music, folk, rock, avant-garde, but he was a great insight. He had a, he was like a walking encyclopedia of kitsch culture. Mm-hmm. You know, once we were hanging out, and he he would always, as I write in my piece, he'd pull you over, give you you know, if you just saw him, give you a hug, and then check this out, and he'd show you a crazy thing on his phone or on his on on a, on his you know, he had a book or something. <laughs> And uh, one time I remember he said, check this out. He was very close. His closest friend, I think, in the world was Lou Reed, who we were just speaking of. And I, Lou told me personally how much he loved Hal. They were like brothers. And um, losing Lou was an incredibly tough thing for Hal, mm. as yeah. you'd imagine. Uh, but after Lou was gone one day, Hal could still have a sense of humor. So one day he called me over. We were at a concert together. And afterwards he said, check this out. And he played, and I think he could find this on YouTube, uh, a version of Lou's song, Walk on the Wild Side, sung in Yiddish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, part of it's in Yiddish and part is just this heavy, cliched, you know, Come on, baby, walk on the wild side with me. <laughs> well, but how loved that? Well, that was typical. So and to mention uh, his his studio, Scott, yeah. it was just like a museum of kitsch Hal Wilner, Hal Wilner Ness. It was unbelievable, you know, stuff like puppets. Uh, puppets. He had a Keith Richards marionette. You know, very detailed, right? I mean, that I couldn't take my eyes. And he was close with Keith Richards, so that's, you know. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, Hal was friendly with Keith, and he told me he got that from the actor Fisher Stevens, who Hal was friendly with. Fisher Stevens knew Hal loved kids and came across that and gave it to Hal. Um, uh, He he had, uh, you know, crazy records, vinyl, like one, uh, Bill Cosby, this was from the late 60s, (laughs) Bill Cosby talks to your kids about drugs. Yes. <laughs> like a lecture on vinyl from Bill Cosby, which in retrospect is maybe the last record you want your kids or anybody in your household to listen to, right? right. 
And, Gary, um, we're, on, I have a question. Were you? I, I used to do this. I'm sure you did too. I used to just send Hal the most random things I found on YouTube that I thought he'd be interested in because they were so outlandish. Did you do the same thing? I did the same. Sometimes he didn't write back. And then when I'd see him the next time, I'd say, hey, what did you think of that? He'd go, oh, yeah, I forgot to write you back. Yes, right. I knew he was getting them. I sent him tons of stuff. I would take photos of things I saw. And <laughs> I remember in Key West, I saw people had done these beautifully painted portraits you know, they look like, you know, presidential portraits of the Three Stooges. <laughs> and on a wall in an art gallery in Key West, and I took a photo of that and sent it to Hal, and, you know, he loved that. And sadly, I mentioned this in my essay about Hal, um, I was, it was a few days before he died, maybe not even a week before he died, I saw online a YouTube video documentary of the singer Vivian Stanshall, or Stanshall, who's very obscure. He was the crazy lead singer of a great 60s kind of comic rock band called the Bonzo Dog Band. And they were, they were the kind of progenitors of Monty Python's Flying Circus. They knew all the guys in Monty Python and were a big influence on Monty Python. And Paul McCartney produced one of their singles, and they're in Magical Mystery Tour, this band, Bonzo Dog Band. They appear doing one of their songs in the Beatles movie, Magical Mystery Tour. So they're great. They're very obscure now, though I recommend them to everybody I know to listen to. They're very funny. And I saw this documentary with him, and I was in lockdown, as were we all. But I texted the, the link to Hal, and his response was, was typically... You know, sometimes he'd write back more, but sometimes I just get a brief response from him. And his response and the last words I got from him were, oh, man, <laughs> you know, which is <laughs> ambiguous enough. But I know I think and Scott, you knew how. So I think that was like, oh, like it, to me, I took it as, you know, oh, man, wow. You know, you know what? You know what's interesting. Just hearing you talk about your book and talking about Hal and thinking about Lou, you guys all kind of, in a similar way, kind of break the construct of the format. You're like, what was that? Yeah, like, of course. Oh, you're always pleased after. And Lou did the same thing, quite frankly. One of the things that I could say, in you know, in support of what you're saying, is I can remember for many years looking forward to the musical interludes on Saturday Night Live because they were so interesting and creative and different from, you know, you, you wouldn't know what to expect. And you were always, I always had a smile on my face and say, that that was cool, that was hip, that was unexpected. Where'd they come up with that? And, of course, now we know. Recently, a friend who has a theater company called the Renegade Theater Company in Manhattan asked if I'd want to direct a play over Zoom. Now, I've written some plays, and I've gone to a lot of plays, and I acted in a play in college, but I've never directed a play. But my immediate answer was yes. I also thought, you know, it's a friend who invited me to work with her. Talk I'm about that. Well, yeah, I'm a little leery of working with friends, mixing business with pleasure, business yeah. with friendship, because I've seen how that could go wrong. But I still said yes immediately and just – read about directing and talked to director friends and just went with 
went with it and kind of checked in with the actors. I'm doing that now over Zoom. Uh, it's a play called Closer by the English playwright Patrick Marber. And it's a, a beautiful play that I saw on Broadway when it opened in the late 90s. It was made into a film that Mike Nichols directed. Same oh, yeah. type. I saw that film. Yeah, it's a good film. Isn't that Jude Law in that movie, in that film? Jude Law, Julia Roberts, uh, Natalie, Natalie Portman. Yeah. And Clark Rowan. Yeah. And I, yeah, and it's a, it's a very strong film. It, it was marred, in my opinion, by a very Hollywoody ending. Yeah, I agree with that. Which changed the play, which is dark. You know, dark all the way to the end. Yeah, definitely dark. Yeah, but the play, you know, the play knocked me out when it was on Broadway. So when my friend invited me to direct it, I said yes to directing without even knowing what the play was in my mind. I was like, I'm in. But when she told me the play, I really was committed to it. But to answer well, how the- do you, how do you approach a play that's already, you know, had a, a historic run on Broadway and was made into a movie and was directed by Mike Nichols? Right. Well, it's been a little bit daunting to, to follow up on that. That was daunting. You're right, Arnie. And also daunting is the fact that we're, I'm directing it over Zoom. The right. production is over Zoom. And this is a play where characters have physical, you know, there's a, there's, there's physical contact, kissing. There's a lot of sex, though not on stage or on screen. But, uh, which is probably for the best of everybody involved that we don't delve into Zoom sex. (laughs) But, uh, there's kissing, there's touching, there's at one point one actor strikes another. And there's a lot of movement, which ordinarily in film and on stage, you want to have the actors moving around a lot to keep the audience attention. Here we're limited by this format. I realized very early on that Zoom is not TV. It's not film. It's not stage. It's a totally different beast, right? It partakes of those other forms and formats, but but it's, it's different. So we've had to work together with the actors along the way in how we're going to to do it. Is it more and like a reading? We It started with a reading, but now we're deep into it. We're about to do a dress rehearsal, so we're talking about costume, we're talking about props, but more importantly, we're talking about how to use the Zoom to convey, mm. for example, a hit, how you hit someone on Zoom, right? And how that can be effective and not look cheesy and be very clear what's happening. I've also, it's been fascinating to develop the 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 scenes with the actors while watching both of them, right? If I were doing a close, if I were the director, say I was Mike Nichols shooting this play closer as a film, you'd have close-ups of just Jude Law. So Nichols as director is just looking at him but we're doing it where I'm not only seeing Jude Law, who ordinarily would be in the film talking, I'm looking at the person he's talking to on the screen as well, engaging her reactions, mm-hmm. right? Zoom lets you have the way the theater does. You know, when you're in the, in the audience at a stage play, unlike a film, it's all happening in front of you, and you direct your attention where you want it to go. Right. So if, if on stage... Bobby is talking to Julie, 
you could be looking at Julie while Bobby's talking or looking at Bobby, or you could be looking at both of them, or you could be looking at your program, or you could be looking over your shoulder where your wife is. She's late, you know, so it's a different medium and uh, we've been working with that. How is this going to be presented? How is this play going to be presented? Um, Well, it's going to be the company I'm working with is called Renegade Mm. and uh, it's a really cool theater company. They did a play on Zoom already, which was directed by Stephen Van Zandt. Little mm. Stephen, music fame and uh, mm-hmm. actor of Sopranos fame and Lilyhammer. Stephen's wife, Maureen, is an actor in my play. Mm. And um, so they're very affiliated with Renegade Theater Company. And Stephen did their previous play, which is a comedy which I acted in in college, actually, Lovers and Other Strangers. Mm-hmm. A really groovy that movie with Joseph Bologna? Exactly, and Renee Taylor. And yeah, that was a great movie. It was a great movie, and Stephen and Maureen and the other actors, Stephen as director, did a great job using Zoom, um, and they had a great tech guy named Sammy, who's also an actor in my play, And uh, he's helping us with the tech for our Zoom production of Closer. And uh, it's on their Facebook page, Lovers and Other Strangers. And my production with them will also be on their Facebook page, Renegade Theater Company. They do work. Maureen was an actor in The Sopranos as well, along with Steven. Mm -hmm. And and they have other actors from New York who have all done stage and screen. And it's a great theater company. And we're, you know, really optimistic about this latest production let's take a quick break our guest is term writer gary lipman back after this every 36 back with our guest gary lipman gary you, you were talking a lot about new york but you have been to missoula montana oh yeah i've been there once but i spent about a, a week and a half there and i loved it and i loved your bookstore your independent bookstore yeah, that's it yeah yeah. Been there, it's been there a while, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know what happened to me there, guys? I, I was there once, it would have been about 15 years ago, and I was browsing through the bookstore, and an old man walked in wearing like a baseball cap that he sort of made himself the lettering on the front of it, and yeah. it said, World War II's youngest living veteran. <laughs> so I did a double take when I saw that. I thought, wait a minute, I, oldest living veteran is what you usually see, right? Yeah. Youngest living veteran. So I went over to this guy. I forgot his name, though I ended up spending hours with him. I went over to him and I said, excuse me, what does your hat mean? He said, if you buy me a cup of coffee, I'll tell you. <laughs> so we left the bookstore and we went to a local cafe in Missoula and he bought, I bought him the coffee, and he told me the story of his life and the story specifically of being the world's, World War II's youngest living veteran was he was, he claimed, now I have no way of confirming any of this, right, guys? But he told me that he was like a, he was either 13 or 14 and big for his age, right? And began having an affair, a sexual affair, with a local married woman, right, <laughs> at age 13 or 14. And and he kept emphasizing, I was big for me. Well, the woman was only 15, so. <laughs> <laughs> Could be. Could be. 
I'm betting not though, Arnie. I get the feeling she was uh, considerably older, right? And so, so he got busted. And literally busted, they hauled him in front of a judge. And the judge said, you know, I'm going to either, you're, you're, you know, you've been a naughty boy and you're either going to jail for three years or the military, which is it? And I think he had lied about his age to make it look not so bad that he was having an affair with this married woman. So the judge may have thought that he was 18 or 17, right? Because he had lied about his age. Right. And he didn't want to go to jail. So into the military he went, you know, at age like 14. <laughs> he claimed that was true. I don't remember his name or whether it was – he told me a lot of stories about combat and – told me he was a wanderer. He would go from Idaho to Montana. He was a traveler. So right. we'd go on a boat. I ended up going to so we get a cup of coffee out of you. <laughs> not only got that, he got groceries because <laughs> I was so taken with him that I said, you know, can I help you out any other way? And he said, let's go buy groceries. So we went shopping. I don't think he had a car. I don't know where he put them. It's 15 years ago. He probably but, uh, lived over Charlie B's, yeah. uh, which is where a lot of uh, vets live. Gary, how do we learn more about the, about the novel, uh, Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon Tate, and where else can we find all the great things that you're working on? Well, it's kind of one-stop shopping, guys, because I have a website, GaryLipmanOfficial.com. That's my name is spelled G A R Y L I double P M A N, then official, all one word, at uh, that. That's the website. dot com. That's not at, sorry. And you can find him on social media. And, I'm uh, on social media under that uh, GaryLipmanOfficial.com, and uh, you could buy my book from. Amazon, from Barnes & Noble, bookstores have it. I always recommend people as best they can during this crazy time shop at independent bookstores and keep them going. Absolutely. I like that great one in Missoula. I'm glad to hear that's still going. Yes. And um, uh, you can also, uh, on my website, read my piece about Hal Wilner, my piece about Lou Reed and all the other journalism. And the theater... Production I'm involved with is going to be on the Renegade Theater Company Facebook page. Thank you for listening to What Do You Know? I can't wait for the next show, Scott. I'm excited too, Arnie. If you'd like to suggest a guest, send me an email at scottrichman at townsquaremedia.com. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening to News Talk KB.